What does it mean to be called crazy in a crazy world? Listen to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health, an affiliate of Madden America Radio, broadcasting on KBOO in Oregon, sponsored by Portland Hearing Voices and the Icarus Project, and syndicated on the Pacifica Network. Madness Radio is online at kboo.fm slash madnessradio and at madinamerica.com. Welcome to Madness Radio. This is your host, Will Hall. Today, my guest is Jax McNamara, and I'm really happy to have Jax on the show. Jax is a genderqueer poet, parent, artist, activist, educator, performer, and somatic healing practitioner based on the Tewa land called Ogapoge, also known today as Santa Fe, New Mexico. Uh, Jax is co-author of Navigating the Space Between Brilliance and Madness, um, is a neurocreative psych survivor who has toured across the U.S. and Canada, offering readings and workshops. Jax is the co-founder of the Icarus Project, now known as the Fireweed Collective, um, a project that offers mental health education and mutual aid through a healing justice lens. Jack's life and work are the subject of the poetic documentary film, Crooked Beauty. So thanks for coming on Madness Radio, Jax McNamara. It's great to have you. Thanks so much. Well, I'm psyched to be back here. It's been a lot of years. Yeah, it's been a lot of years. We were trying to figure out when we we probably met in like 2004 or 2005. We met when I was on tour with the Icarus Project in 2004. And I think the last time I was on Madness Radio was when my book came out in 2012. Yeah. So that's, uh, yeah, that's a good plug. People should check out that interview. And you, I think I remember you read some of your poetry in that interview on, on Madness Radio. So, so yeah, back in the Freedom Center days, and then we worked together on the Icarus Project till I guess I left in 2008. And then um, now you have moved on and now you are among many things, being a train, a trainer and a supervisor and a performer. You're also work as a therapist or coach or counselor. Is that right? Yeah, I call myself a somatic healing practitioner or a trauma healing coach. Generally, I didn't go the route of grad school and licensure. So I am not technically a therapist. Although the work I do is quite similar. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we're basically we're I guess we're colloquially therapists. But in terms of like legally, we're not maybe using the words psychotherapist or psychologist. We're sort of on parallel tracks, which is what we want to talk about today. So if you want to know more, I guess, about your experience and your personal experience with the mental health system and how you got into the system and what your story has been with being diagnosed with bipolar and that, I really encourage people to check out the other interview that we did. But today, we're kind of thinking it would be interesting for two survivors, psych survivors, people who've been in the system, who we decided to become therapists to talk about how that is for us, some of the problems and challenges, some of the questions. Uh, both of us uh, chose to not get licensed. Why did we choose to do that? And what is it that's different? But mostly, I'm just really excited and happy to have you on the show and to be encouraging people to check out your your work and your your website and your art. It's also really super interesting. You're a multifaceted creative person. There's also an incredibly beautiful documentary film about you, Crooked Beauty, I would really encourage people to to check out. I think that's on available online. Yeah, it is. So Jax, maybe the best way to start this is to sort of remind everyone that, you know, both of us have been hurt by psychiatry and we don't necessarily endorse the mental health system or the therapy world. So why would we want to become therapists? This is a question that I get, especially from the hearing voices world and from 
the psych survivor world, like, well, wait a second, now, now you're a therapist. Did you, did you change sides? Are you now one of them now? Yeah, it's a great question. I've thought about it a lot. Oh, there's so much I could say where to start. So I'll start back in those Icarus project days, right? There was a lot of pressure I felt to totally discard the mental health system, like in terms of my personal choices around healing and treatment or non-treatment or any of that. And to engage in a model where peer support was enough or a model where, you know, we weren't quote unquote air quotes broken to begin with, um, where the only reason that we suffered was psychiatric oppression and there wasn't actually significant suffering other than the psychiatric oppression um, and what was caused by medications, et cetera. So I felt a lot of pressure to to identify not with a diagnosis and to find all the mental health support I needed through mutual aid and through peers, particularly in like anarchist and radical circles. And for me, so as you know, you were around then, like a huge trauma that happened in my life was when my mom died in 2006. Um, I won't go into the details, but it was a really gruesome and brutal situation. And in the wake of it, I had a ton of really intense trauma symptoms emerge, which at the time I didn't know much about trauma. So I just thought I was losing my mind. I just thought this was evidence that I was really crazy. Like I was having horrific, persistent nightmares every night that I had to save her life over and over again. And I was like smelling her dying body in random places. And I could go on, but suffice it to say really acute symptoms of trauma. Um, and my mutual aid peer support community did not have the tools or capacity to help me through how intense all of that was. I definitely burned out friends and burned out lovers. I had a real need to process really horrific stuff. Um, Cause for me, my mom's death also unleashed memories of childhood sexual abuse. It just kind of ripped the lid off Pandora's box and unleashed all the trauma I had lived through. And in terms of how that led me to wanting to be a therapist, one day I was at an Al-Anon meeting and I was talking about smelling my mom's body. And someone came up to me afterwards and she said, this might be totally inappropriate, but I'm a therapist. And I just want to mention that what you're talking about, it sounds a lot like post-traumatic stress. And have a friend who's a therapist who's really good with trauma. And I think she could really help you. And at the time, I felt like I was totally losing my mind and totally unable to function in my life. Um, and so I said, yes, I said, give me your friend's number. I will call her because my community did not have the bandwidth or the knowledge of how to support me. And she was the first good therapist I ever saw. I had seen a lot of lousy mental health practitioners up to that point, And she really helped. Thank God for uh, 12 steps. I mean, there's like this community and people really can give resources and support. It sounds like, you know, that's where you got connected to this person. Totally. Yeah. No, it was so important. It was so important to have that peer mutual aid space, which is what 12 steps are, right? And it was so helpful to be connected to someone who was not pathologizing, like the therapist that they hooked me up with was not pathologizing, was not stigmatizing. 
and could really hold space for me to talk about all the grisly stuff and could really help me to normalize and understand the suffering I was experiencing and what a trajectory would look like to heal from that suffering, you know, that it was possible for me to not feel that way forever. And it was working with her that made me be like, hmm, maybe I want to be like a radical, awesome, trauma-informed therapist type of person, you know, like if I could show up for other people in the way she is showing up for me. And she wasn't terribly politicized, but she knew her shit. She never made me feel crazy. I was like, if I could show up like that and be politicized and be queer, that would be really important. And this was 2006. There were a lot less queer politicized healers around um, than there are right now. So that kind of planted the seed for me. Yeah, I think that's one of the real powers of starting with trauma and, or PTSD or whatever you want to call it, is that it sort of short circuits a lot of the worst misunderstandings that can come from psychiatry and the pathologization and the problems inside of you and you're broken and you're not going to get better. And, and I hear a couple things in what, what you're saying. Like One is that the mutual aid hearing voices movement or the psychiatric survivor movement or the peer support movement, whatever you want to call it, there's, there's capacity. And if you're, if you're, you're beyond that capacity, where do you go? People aren't necessarily going to be able to be available to do it. And where, where I'm often thinking is, you know, we don't, we live in a capitalist consumerist society where everyone's completely consumed with spending all their time working. Most of us at least, and there aren't spaces. And so the idea that we're going to suddenly just kind of conjure up out of our volunteerism, just the time to spend with each other is really very naive in a capitalist society. And, and maybe if you have a lot of free time, you're privileged, and maybe you can do that. But I don't think most people are. But I think what's also interesting about what you're saying is different than my experience is that you had a really good role model. It sounds like you're like, wow, I, this person really helped me they get it. They're not pathologizing me. They're they're offering me something. They're offering me a pathway forward, and they're filling a need that's not met. I can do that. Maybe I can do that too. I, now that I learned this, my experience was kind of more the opposite. Like I kept running up against all these different therapists. Some of them quite extreme, and I would sort of get a sense of like this is what works. Like some of the basics of what works, but I learned a lot about what doesn't work. And one of the most, I mean, like just to give a quick example, there was a therapist that I told her, you know, look, I'm, she had been referred to a friend and I trusted her. And I, I was talking about my uh, voice hearing experience and I was hearing a really intense, nasty, violent voice at that time of my life, which comes back sometimes not as much now. And there's a lot of different reasons for that. But so she said, well, look, why don't you tell me what the voice is saying. And I, I was just too scared. I was, it was really hard to speak. I was frozen. I was going through a lot of what I now I definitely identify as flashback or trauma or triggering activation, uh, somatic responses. But at that moment, all I knew was that she wanted to communicate with this voice and I couldn't speak it. So she says, okay, well, take, take a pen in your left hand and write what the voice is saying on a piece of paper. So I did. And, uh, so in a sense, the technique worked, the approach worked, it got, it started to establish some communication with the voice between her and the voice. But what the voice was saying, which I had told her, was really nasty, violent, 
aggressive, abusive, horrible, horrible stuff that I'm living with in my head. And so that moment of, wow, I'm getting it on paper, I'm sharing it with another person, this is going to be like a, a turnaround moment, potentially looking back. You know, she was sort of like, I would say subdued or quiet dealing with the voice. We didn't have much time in the session. But then after the session, I got a call from her. And what she said was, she says, you know, Will, I made a mistake. I, I thought that I had openings for more clients. And uh, I can't, I'm sorry, I can't see you. I have some referrals for you. Good luck. And hung up. And then I was, I was like, wow, you know, no. And so I, I called her back and I said, you know, you got scared, didn't you? You're, you lied to me about not having. So in that little, that little story there, there's so many different things that I've learned about how to, how to do things differently. Like you have, you have to really recognize that there are these moments of incredible vulnerability. And if, if you as a therapist don't meet the person with the promise of safety and trust and commitment and honesty, you can do a lot of damage. And at, at that time in my life, I was connected with Freedom Center and Icarus Project. I do had some strength. And so I had the power to say F you to a therapist, you know, you're the problem, not me. But I think in other situations earlier in my life, maybe, or other people would have walked away with a very strong message of, I am too broken to help. And so each one of those betrayals was a life-threatening betrayal, and they were a trauma. And at the same time, they were also a gift because struggling with them and, and digesting that and understanding it and telling the story over and over again and sharing it in workshops and sharing it with survivor friends and colleagues really taught me, okay, what is it that people need? What is it the what's the essence that was missing there? And it's, you know, it's kind of trite to say it, but like unconditional acceptance and unconditional love is really what was missing and honesty. So you mentioned not pathologizing. Let's call this the good therapist or the helpful therapist, the model, the person who became the model for you. You also mentioned that there's a pathway through this for you. What were some of the other things that you think that this therapist had or, or you have as a therapist that are that's different that other other therapists might not have that that can be so crucial and be just make a huge difference for people well one of them your story really brings up for me which is she was the first therapist i ever saw who i felt like she wasn't scared of me i didn't feel like i was going to scare or overwhelm her and actually i'll clarify with previous therapists i had felt either like i scared them like the intensity of what i had been through or the intensity of my you know emotional extre extreme scared them or that they were minimizing or that they tried to be like, ah, oh, it's not that big of a deal. And she was the first person I saw who she was grounded and real and I wasn't going to push her off center, you know, and I wasn't going to scare her. She wasn't threatened. Um, she didn't make me feel crazy, like just felt like she could hold it. So maybe this is the distinction I want to make is the distinction between concerned for me? Was she concerned for me? Yes, she was concerned on my behalf. But was she scared that my stuff was big enough that it was going to overwhelm her and make her not okay? No, I never felt like if I really reveal what's going on, my therapist won't be okay or my therapist can't hang. 
Yeah, I'm asking that because I think that's probably the line for me. There have been like there have been a few people that I've had to say, "Look, I'm not the best person for you." Like I'm, I try and be really clear that addiction. For example, if someone has a really strong, intense, I mean, I'm trained, I I work with substances and I work with, you know, people's addictive processes. But if someone has a really strong addiction that they're going through, it's just not my strength. And I can start to feel not scared of them, but maybe more just like I'm at a loss here, not a momentary in the moment I'm in a loss, but in general, I'm, but like more like, wow, I'm really not the best person for this. Did this therapist, did they disclose some of their own? Because I'm wondering maybe the reason that they weren't like overwhelmed by your, I forget the word you used, intensity or being too much or something, is because maybe they were familiar with it in themselves. Were they a survivor themselves? Did they disclose that? They didn't actually disclose, no. no. I mean, I think something for me that felt reassuring about them was... They were the first time I saw a therapist who it felt like there was a significant age difference between us. Like I was 26 and I would guess she was in her mid forties where that age difference felt like a positive thing and not a distancing thing where I was like, Oh, you've lived, you've been around, you've seen some stuff. It was kind of like a motherly, but in a good way, not in a patronizing way. Like there was like, for me, something warm about like, you've been through some stuff, you have it together, as opposed to my 25 year old friends who've been trying to support me, right, who were also like chaotic and jumbled and all over the place, being like, okay, this person has lived and like, I'm not freaking them out, you know, and they have their life together. And I think that's something I try to bring to my clients. Like I seem to really attract clients in particular who are in their Saturn returns. I attract a lot of like 28 to 30 year olds. And I think for some of them, like I'm a bit of a grounding older figure who's still relatable. Like I'm not so far away as to be unrelatable, but you know, like I have like a stable home and I'm married and my life is not a giant chaotic mess and they don't scare me and freak me out, you know? And I'm like, I've seen it. I've seen people at this point going through all kinds of extreme states and people healing from all kinds of trauma. And you're not going to freak me out when you tell me that secret you've never told anyone, you know, or that voice you're hearing or that secret taboo fantasy, or, you know, the fact that you're having flashbacks, like it's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would say that that's very similar. There's like a, there's a thread of, of fear. You're going to freak me out you're overwhelming me. So now we're disconnected and you're alone. You're alone over there with this experience and I'm over here and I'm somehow different than you. You're the monster and I'm the normal person. And that's probably a thread that actually goes through the the psych survivor movement and mutual aid and the hearing voices movement. Because it's one of the, the biggest messages that you get when you first show up at a hearing voices movement is like, wow, it's okay. And people aren't, aren't freaking out. Like, okay, you hear a violent voice. What does it say? You know what's what's going on? What what do you mean by violent voice? Let's let's talk about this. It's more of a of a kind of like a welcoming, and that I mean I think like you know I'm remembering some of my training that I often try and forget, <laughs> but it's like okay, can you be the good enough mother? Can you be like a holding a holding space? And that's like a big question for us to talk about. How much is theory important? Because I think theory is like fifty fifty. It can either help you or it can. Th- throw you for a loop. 
But I think there is something about like creating a safe landing place, a refuge. And you said like, okay, I have my, I have my life together. I'm grounded. I have a home. I have a family. Well, you know, I'm, I'm pretty nomadic. Like I don't, I don't own a home. Like if you looked at my finances, you'd probably be like, I don't know if Will's really 55. He's got the finances of a 30 year old, you know? So, but there's something, I, I think it is, it is true that I do have a certain kind of like solidness that people can lean against me. Like they, they can look up to me as maybe not look up to, but, but you know, a lot of, a lot of the people I do work with are in their late twenties, early their or their adolescence or their, you know, so there is that like, okay, there's this, there's this figure who's maybe been through it and I can lean against them exactly the way, the way that you're saying, but maybe I do it in a more like, yeah, I have a lot of chaos in my life and I don't, there's like a solid center that I have dealing with like a lot of the unpredictability and a lot of the chaos and you know it's maybe not as extreme as they're going through i'm not like it's certainly not as extreme as it was when i was in my 20s but it often is reassuring for them to hear like oh will you had some suicidal you were struggling with suicide not 10 years ago but like 10 weeks ago like oh i mean and that you're able to deal with that and live with that. And I think this conversation is really important, Jax, because I don't think either one of us is saying that just being a survivor in and of itself means much of anything, actually, because your your experience with this person who may or may not have been a survivor, it, it was like the quality, because we can get into a thing of like, you know, um, if someone says that they're a survivor, they're a psychiatric survivor, I don't really know much about them. I can start to make some assumptions, but I would much rather work with a therapist who's not a survivor, who has those qualities of safety and acceptance and not being afraid of me, than to work with some therapist who says, I'm a survivor, but is like terrible with those qualities. That's interesting. So this therapist, this good therapist, we could say, didn't disclose their personal life to you, their personal struggles. And my sense is that you and I both do maybe I, I might disclose more we might disclose differently but what is it do you think about disclosure that's important here like what is it that's important or significance about us a, a therapist being able to say yeah i was diagnosed with x y and z or yeah i've been in the hospital mm, that's such a good question oh, there's so many levels i want to answer it on because i think i probably don't disclose as much as you routinely but i do disclose some you know and i think also like my my history is out there and fairly public. If people want to do enough Googling, they can find out all kinds of stuff about me because of the Icarus Project and because of Crooked Beauty. It's on your website as a as a healer. You say I was I'm a psych survivor and I have this and I think you front yours a little more. I think I, I think I, I probably front mine a little bit more than you, but you've like a lot of therapists may not disclose their sexuality or their gender identity on there. Yeah. Yeah, and it very clearly says that I'm queer and, you know, and I, I mean, so my specialty in terms of the clients I see is trauma and that's what my training is in. You know, I did three years of training in somatics and trauma and I'm very upfront with my clients that I'm a trauma survivor, very upfront. I don't necessarily go into the details of the trauma of which kinds, but they know, they all know. But if a, if a therapist says to you, oh, I trained in th trauma and I'm a trauma survivor, does that mean that you would necessarily trust them just on those two things? No, not necessarily. I mean, it also really depends, you know, for me, it's also like, what is their social and political context? Like, do they have an awareness and analysis of like systems of oppression and how those things are shaping us? You know, do they have an awareness of gender? 
you know, there's so many levels on which someone may or may not be clued in, you know, and also I think it's what you're looking for at different times. Like right now I'm currently seeing a therapist who's not totally awesome. There are some places we don't connect. You're currently, you're, you're seeing a therapist for yourself now. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I have to say I'm, ju- I'm kind of envious. Like I, I, I try to see therapists, but I have so much trauma. I mean, those two stories I just told you, it short circuits me, Jax. I just, I freeze, you know, I, I have so much and then they don't understand it. You know, they don't understand what's going on. And even the really skilled ones, and I, I, as you can imagine, I, I, I find them, you know, they're out there. And I, I think it's just, it's really, it's about, I have so much mistrust. Sometimes they, they just screw up and it's really obvious that, look, you are the wrong person for me. But it really is, it's almost like an unsolvable bind. Like if you've been harmed by help, how do you get help by the, you know, because it's just going to remind you. And But the other way I look at that is that it just really makes me lean on my community more. It makes me lean on myself and my spiritual practice. And yeah, I mean, what I'm hearing and what you're talking about is just a real call for transparency and accountability on the part of the therapist. And I think that that for a lot of people, it takes a politicized awareness to even offer that, to even realize that it's needed. And I think it's so important. I think it builds trust. You know, something I hear you talking about, which I try to model and the better therapists I've seen have modeled is being willing to acknowledge when you're out of your depth as a practitioner, being willing to acknowledge when something is not in your wheelhouse or being able to acknowledge when someone of a different identity might be a better fit for what your client is going through. You know, like I saw a therapist after my daughter was born for birth trauma because I had birth trauma and she was really transparent about like, I'm really good with trauma, you know, and I can help you with the birth trauma. I'm not a parent. And if stuff starts coming up eventually, that's really related to parenting, we should probably find you a different person to see. And she was right. She was really helpful with the birth trauma. Like we did EMDR, it greatly decreased the intensity of those memories and helped me to function, you know, and then there came a time where my baby turned into a toddler and was driving me nuts. And I was like, I need to see a parent, you know, and she was very supportive of like, okay, I think it's time to move on. I think you need to see someone who really gets what it is like to parent someone. That that sort of comes back to one of the kind of basic things. I think there's sort of this, there's an aura that therapists I think have of like that we've figured stuff out and that we're somehow elevated and like, Oh, if I just, I'm going to like sponge off of this person's, you know, astral body, and I'm going to somehow get elevated. And I, I think that the psychoanalysis, that there's like this idea in, in well, we don't we want to get started on the Jung world, which is an incredible mess. But there is this idea that you've been analyzed, that the people who've been analyzed are the people they've somehow like they've, they've unlocked the riddle of their basic conditioning programming and it's completely ridiculous it has it's like you know it's just it's, it's a way of creating this elite so what i do is i i try and say like well what are you, what are your goals like what what is it you specifically want because i think that this is a thing about trauma the trauma can become like an ever receding horizon like i've never met anybody who was free completely how do you even measure i'm I've done, I'm done now. I'm finished with healing my trauma. So how do you, do you kind of work with a contract? Do you kind of work with like a, Hey, well, here's what we're working on. 
here because it sounds like that was very useful for you around the parenting piece. Like I need someone to work with me around these specific experiences I'm having with my birth trauma that I don't want to have those experiences or I want to transform them. And that's my very discreet kind of contract with my practitioner. I don't generally work with contracts, no. I shouldn't use the word contract because I don't work with them either, but just like an understanding of what the goals are or why we're here. Yeah. I mean, when people start working with me, you know, I generally ask them if this goes well, if this relationship is helpful, how do you hope your life would look different in six months or in a year? And that's kind of a framing that I come in with, you know, and and it's really interesting to see how folks answer it in terms of like, I find that when there's a lot of trauma, sometimes, you know, one of the things trauma does is it limits our vision of the future, even believing that a future is possible and much less that it could be a future we actually want to be living in. And so it's quite telling for me to see are people able to imagine something different from themselves? And what does it tell me if they can't, you know, and that's where we're starting. And some clients come in and that's where they're starting. And they're like, I don't know. I can't imagine feeling, I can't imagine what that would be like, but I don't want to feel how I am now, you know? And with those clients, we kind of start on a level of like, they need to be less alone. And I'm going to be someone who's going to accompany them through this particular time. And it's, a sign of healing when we reach a place where we can even think through what do you want in six months, you know, or like, what are you committed to? And for me, when they start to have that capability, I'm like, check, some healing is happening, you know, and then other clients come in and they're really concrete. And they're like, I keep ghosting people in my life. And I want to figure out how to be a more accountable human in relationships and in my activist community. Can you help me understand why I ghost on people and how to show up differently? And so that's what we work on, you know, but it can be all over the spectrum from very concrete to very vague. Yeah. It seems like we keep, we, you and I keep coming back to this thing and maybe this is what makes being a survivor therapist and being willing to disclose different is we keep coming back to the importance of the relationship. Like for me, it's like, it's, it's really about, maybe I wouldn't say all the time because that's not true, but it's so often it's about, can I build a relationship where the person doesn't feel alone with what they're going through, that they really feel safe enough with me that I'm kind of in there with, with them, you know, they're not just up against whatever they're up against on their own. And, and that's, that's really tricky when you're, cause I work, work a lot with families. And so there's these family conflicts and I might be in a situation where I'm meeting with the whole family or I'm meeting individually. And I have to really emphasize to the person that at the end of the conversation, like you're the one who I'm building the relationship with. You're the one that I'm connected to. And I think that it raises like these questions about, okay, there's trauma, there's theory, there's technique, there's tools. Like when you said, okay, so if this was a successful thing, if you got out of this, what you want to get out of it, how would your life be different or something like that? That's kind of a tool. Like that would be a great thing to remember, to memorize, to write down on a index card and then have, be able to pull it out and use it as a tool. But there's something really more basic there, which is that we're kind of I mean, maybe tell me what you think of this. We're kind of learning how to just be human, like how to really connect with the other person and how much of your abilities as a therapist have to do with who you are, Jax McNamara, like as a human being, 
and how much of it has to do with what you learned and what you got taught and what you, the skills that you were trained in? Yeah, it's such a good question. I don't have a percentage for you, but um, I mean, I think, yeah, I think it's kind of 50, 50. Like I think who I am as a human is huge and just how I show up and empathize and hold space is huge. And I'll say like, I do have a specific skill set. like mainly it's drawn from generative somatics and also from internal family systems. And so I definitely have some orientations that I was taught, you know, in terms of theory, like I was taught to see trauma as like what our bodies do to survive trauma as post-traumatic stress intelligence rather than post-traumatic stress disorder. And to really look at the ways that, you know, our trauma responses or our survival strategies are adaptive fundamentally, or they were adaptive at a certain point in our history, you know, and that may have changed. Like there are theoretical orientations that underpin how I approach most things with people. Um, but wouldn't you, wouldn't you say that you've met practitioners that have exactly the same theoretical orientation and skill set, and they were just terrible? You wouldn't want to go anywhere near them? Because I certainly have. <laughs> like, for example, something that I see, I mean, I think something that's useful that I bring that I suspect strongly is useful that you bring is like a fluency and comfort with people who deal with extreme altered states, you know, which is not necessarily something everyone in my somatics training has, you know, because my training was oriented so much around trauma, like people aren't necessarily always comfortable with folks who hear voices or see things. I'm often thinking about this research that was done about, there's lots of research that shows that psychotherapy works, but the research also shows that it doesn't kind of matter what the theory is or the modality. And that what matters is that, that the, the therapist is confident about what they're doing, that they have a good relationship with the person they're working with, and they're willing to get feedback, which you think about it, that's, those are the qualities of a good friendship or a good relationship. So I'm wondering, like, if you were, if you were living in a different country and you didn't have access to all these different trauma tools or skills, or, or if you had a different class background or educational background, you probably would still figure out a way to be a, a good healer if that's your destiny and that's your personal quality and your personhood. Does that, are you following what I'm, what I'm saying? Oh yeah, totally. One of the most essential skills in being a good healing practitioner, particularly of the therapisty variety is the ability to listen and empathize and hold space, right? Like that's pretty non-controversial but how does that get developed, right? Like I think for me, and I think a lot, I will put this out there, a lot of the therapist type folks I know, part of how that was developed was through trauma, was through, you know, like I had a super alcoholic mom and I really had to show up and be the adult in the relationship way too early. And I held a lot of space for her to talk about her life story and talk about her feelings when she was, you know, drunk and hemorrhaging memories. So yeah, I feel like before I had any training, I was already well equipped to do emotional labor for other people. And that is a double-edged sword. Like that's a real double-edged sword. Would you say that that we're, we're kind of moving into the territory of like, what is your destiny? What is sort of the spiritual calling of like the wounded healer that you have a certain spiritual initiation that's way beyond tools and skills and techniques and books and trainings, but it's really more about the person's life 
myth really about like what who are you in this world and can you spiritually connect with that and then make your destiny real would you say that that's something to do with that for sure yeah i do feel like there's something in there i mean i have a poem i wrote years ago called love song for mama that ends with the lines you showed me that the world what is it you showed me that the world is sick and needs healing you never had to say the words and i very much feel like those experiences with her and with just observing injustice and suffering in the world set me on a path towards becoming a healing practitioner. And it's it's big to own that because some people would say like, oh, Will, you know, you're working with all these families that are struggling with extreme states. You're just trying to, you know, heal your own family you know, indirectly, you're just, you're just going through a trauma reenactment of just like, you know, repeating your own, you know, desperate effort to change. And then you've created a life for yourself that allows you to change in the present, the things you couldn't change in the past. And I would say, yeah, actually, yeah, that's absolutely what I'm doing. And I'm, I'm, but I'm leveraging, I'm trying to leverage it consciously and um, do it. And one of the things that I, I learned um, in my process work training, and also just from I think meditation and sort of like the Jungian, the anima mundi, the idea of the world as a mirror or a dream is that the people on the outside are also inside of you. And maybe this is something that is related to internal family systems, but everybody, every time I'm working with someone, I can find them inside of myself. I can find that scared person, that student who wants the answer from the teacher, that critic who is like, I didn't do it good enough. And so I deserve to suffer. Um, that person who feels lonely, all that's inside of myself. So what I'm getting at is that often the, the, the leftovers from the sessions, the, the way in which my, the people that I work with, my clients come into my life, it's an opportunity for me to heal. Like, oh, this person is working on this thing, but they're not really working on their thing over there. It's more like I'm them too. I'm working on that thing inside of myself too. It might be smaller. It might be less overwhelming. It might feel more, but there's this way in which like we're all healing together rather than I go to work, I, I fix the car and then I come home and I clean off the oil and the grit on my hands and I go live my life. It's like, we're all, we're all somehow, it's kind of, it comes back to what we were saying about being something channeling through you. Like there's this intuition moving through you. You and I chose to not get licensed. Mm-hmm. And I think that sometimes people come to us and I, I want them to, I want them to think about this. I want them to say, Hey, I'm a survivor. The system is, is messed up. There's a lot of bad therapists out there. I want to be a therapist too. I want to, I want to do this work. And I, I encourage people if you, if you, to go for it. But what about this question of like being licensed and the decision to not be licensed or should people be licensed or how do you get trained to do this kind of thing? I mean, I'll answer it from a personal level of my choice to not get licensed. A, I can't make it through grad school. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, not because I fail, but the microaggressions and the macroaggressions and the structure of academia and the level of demands just do not mix with my mental health remaining stable. Being both a trauma survivor and a psych survivor I've just had terrible experiences, which I'm sure you're familiar with, you know, being in an academic classroom where you're learning about like abnormal psychology Oh yeah, yeah. and you hear them talking about people with your own diagnoses in this really othering pathologizing way. And it's so triggering. And I know that 
some folks can go try to like fix the system from the inside. I am not one of them. Right. I'm just, it's toxic to myself to go through that environment. So that's one piece is that I have found academia for mental health specifically toxic. I don't want to take on the debt. Yeah, well, let's let, but let's take let's start with the first piece, but let's turn it around. I mean, I wouldn't say that you're like you're not strong enough for the system. I would say it in the other direction, which is that you know, to do the quality and the help that you give to people would have been crushed yeah. if you had stayed in that situation. It actually well, wasn't. It wasn't actually supporting you as a healer. No, and I mean, that. and I couldn't. Like when I looked at the long route of what it would take to get licensed, so not just getting through grad school and getting a master's, which in and of itself, like I found academia toxic, but also the route of like acquiring the hours, working at an agency, 3000 hours in community mental health, having to diagnose people, having to be inside the paperwork, bureaucratic system. I was just like, I can't see myself doing that and I don't see that serving what I want to be offering the world and it's hard because I really wish financially that like I wish I could take insurance and that Mm. my services could be accessible to a lot more people you know like I've been on Medicaid off and on throughout my adult years and I wish that I could take Medicaid so that folks who are low income have more access to me. Like that is the main reason I would like to have a license is to be accessible to Medicaid and to insurance. But the path that would be required, the number of years, the amount of debt and the amount of like being in a pathologizing medical model way of understanding mental health, I just think it would kill me and it doesn't feel worth it. And then also, I really appreciate the freedom I have outside of a licensure system to see people the way I want to, to do things like involve touch and body work, to disclose mm-hmm. if I want to disclose, to see people in my backyard. I feel like there's all this freedom to craft my healing practice in the way that I think most serves my clients rather than jumping through the hoops that are required to maintain my license. Yeah, I think a lot of a lot of people wouldn't be able to see people across state lines. Yeah, for example, for example. on Zoom, for example. Mm-hmm. So that's an accessibility thing. Yeah, I mean, I I would think of it in terms of like, well, what what's really the heart of what you're trying to do? Are you trying to become a healer, therapist, teacher, practitioner, whatever you want to call it? And then what serves that? And I think for the vast majority of people, it seems like the training systems that we have in place now kind of crush that and they end up pushing people in a direction of of either not being able to help people or or harming and the ones who seem to make it through that system and do well often do it in spite of the system maybe that's too strong but unless you have very strong sensors up about the dangers of pathologization and forced treatment and medication and drugging of children you're going to get go into a licensing path and then you're going to start being part of those systems of violence. And yeah. so I really try and tell people, because I, I, I talk to people who've done it and they try and navigate as much as possible and they, everyone makes their own compromises, but you have to be really honest about what you're doing. And there's so much dishonesty. There's just so much unwillingness, even in the most more, we could say advanced or progressive or humanistic, like Naropa or JFK, or mm-hmm. I don't even know which school schools there are out there 
they they still have this kernel of violence that's going on that no one they people will sort of talk about it but they end up being participating yeah. in it and i think that's very disturbing to me and i i mean the, the basic i mean it's basically my experience was the same as yours i mean i i just was it was just totally toxic for me and the hardest part was i was in the closet about my survivor status. So I'd be in classes where they're talking about schizophrenia and I wasn't talking about mm -hmm. my own diagnosis, which you can imagine. And then just lies. Like I asked the head, Tanya Wilkinson, I think she is. I'm going to name her because she needs to be held accountable. Uh, <laughs> she's the head, she was the Jungian head of the clinical psychology program at California Institute of Integral Studies. And I raised my hand once. I said, you know, do antipsychotic drugs target psychosis or do they just tranquilize anybody who takes them? And of course, the answer, the honest answer is that they just tranquil they're tranquilizers. They just tranquilize anyone. And she's like, oh, no, no, no. This is a very specific chemistry that's targeting the psychosis as a disease process. And it's like, wow, you're, you're really just basically sending misinformation out into the world. There were many, many different the way that borderlines were oh, talked about I was, is I mean, just, just disgusting. Totally. We, we literally, to learn about borderline, we watched Fatal Attraction, oh, which no. is about a serial killer. That was our, that was our learning. Literally, that was our learning about borderlines. And there's, no. I just, I, I, there's just so many examples like this. I get so angry. I invited a friend of mine who was a psych survivor who doesn't take meds, who is now a, a successful international teacher to give his talk about his spiritual experience. And then the head of our program said to me quietly, you know, he should be on meds. Afterwards. Are you serious? So, yeah. Yeah. That's, I should, wow. I should tell that story more, but yeah, I'm a, I don't want to name him because I think he's probably seen the error of his ways. This was 20 years ago. So, but uh, yeah, so I, I would, I would agree, but I would, I would say it's almost like the opposite. It's like this, the, what you need to survive that goes against what you need to be a healer, to be a, practitioner i mean it's probably to your credit that you couldn't survive <laughs> something like that because i, I want to be with somebody as a working with a therapist i would want to be with someone who's sensitive and aware enough mm -hmm. that they just can't digest and tolerate that yeah. which brings us to another question we have we've had a long discussion and there's a lot to talk about it's been really wonderful but this question of access because yes it would be great if we could just get therapy reimbursement if we could in fact, just forget about insurance companies that people just could get healthcare, including counseling, but you do a sliding scale. You offer, mm -hmm. you try and that's what I did. That was the solution that I came up with. So I mean, that's charge. the best I've been able to yeah. figure out. It's not perfect, you know? Um, and since I've had a kid and my life costs have gone up, like the bottom of my sliding scale has gone up. I'm not able to see people huh. as cheaply as I used to before I oh, okay. had a third human in my household to be supporting, yeah. you know? Well, you should be, you should be earning, you know, you're, you're very skilled, you're very accomplished. You should be getting the top end of the scale from the people that can afford it. And then maybe the people who can't afford it, you can charge them less. That's what mm -hmm. I, that's what I do. There are people that I see for very little money but I, I wish i could see more of them and i can't maybe yeah. if i could accept insurance i would i would be able to see them so i think anyone in a healing healthcare practice has to have an awareness that there are people that just can't afford oh, yeah. your work and you've got to do something to reach out to them you've got to do something to make it available to them with a sliding scale or, or whatever it is or with group offerings you know that's the way i see yeah. some people do it is they offer groups and they're like if you can't afford individual join a group mm -hmm. but 
it sucks. I would love to be able to offer the work yeah. more affordably, you know, and I've had various hypotheses at different times. Like friends and I have talked about trying to form some kind of community health, you know, like radical mental health community clinic and then get grants as a nonprofit and then be able to pay ourselves through grants. And that way we oh, don't dear have to God. charge our clients. Oh, but then God. I'm like, oh God, do I ever want to go back down the route of grants yeah. in a nonprofit? I don't know if I do. Yeah. Yeah. It's the important thing I, I think is that we recognize that it's an ethical dilemma and Such we don't, an and we don't want to just normalize it. It's a total blame the victim psychology at work mm -hmm. around class yeah. in our society. So it's really important that you and I and other, because uh, it's very privileged. It was very, it's a, it's an incredible, I mean, it's hard work. It's really stressful, but it's such a privilege to be able to earn money doing something that's meaningful that I love doing mm -hmm. and that feeds me and that feels like is my calling. So we have to think about how do we manage this completely unfair class system that mm -hmm. we're in. And, you know, I, I see some people very, very low fee. And then I see other people at my regular fee, which is the industry market standard. And I wish that I could see more people at a lower fee. I just, I just can't. And also I have to also, like, I talk to people who have like 30 clients a week. Right. This is going to bring up like caseload, right? Yeah. The fact that it's even called caseload, it's like, these are human beings. Like how can you meaningfully see 30 or 40 people? And it's, so I, I, I have to limit the number of people that I, I'm not complaining. It's very privileged because I get so much back from the work that I do, but it just shows how the structural reality of capitalism and the way the mental health system is set up goes, works so much against healing totally. that we have to think in just a totally different direction. I, I love the idea of radical mental health collectives offering, creating clinics, and but the whole nonprofit government crants and rich, you know begging from rich people who set mm -hmm. the agenda and gatekeepers. And it's such a complicated thing. And yeah. ultimately we're not, this is one of the reasons I was saying this idea that we're all in this healing process together because ultimately we're not gonna heal. None of us are gonna heal individually unless we can really get our act together as a planet. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't make sense to go into global climate crisis and massive economic inequality that we have it's it's impacting all of us and so these systems are connected with our personal healing agendas and so i think that's why it's important to look to people like you who are questioning how do we create movements how do we create alternatives how do we challenge capitalism and the oppressions that we live under because if we really believe in healing and we really believe in healing as a calling yeah, we're gonna want we're gonna want to heal the world. We're gonna want to transform the world. I think that's that's essential, crucial, and that's why being close to the psychiatric survivor movement, the hearing voices movement, the whole network of mutual aid that is out there is such an important. I didn't just leave the movement and then start a private practice. I have a private practice that's deeply connected yeah. with the movement. There's all this connection, and I think that's also your approach as well. Very much so. I mean, and also in my practice, I really prioritize working with folks who are activists and cultural workers, you know, people mm. who are engaged in Great. various types of social justice work or cultural work. But I also want to touch on it from the perspective of, you know, like I am someone who I still struggle with my mental health. And it, it is not possible for me to see 30 to 40 people a week and be well as a human, you right. know? And since we're doing this episode on like survivors as therapists, like part of how I navigate my access needs, if I'm going to talk about it from like a disability perspective is I have an access need to have flexibility. I have an access need to have space and padding around my clients. I have an access need to not have 
too many of them in a day or in a week so that if I'm having a flare either of mental health or of physical health stuff like migraines and, you know, chronic illness, that there's space and our system going down that whole licensure path. I feel like I wouldn't have that space that I need in order to keep functioning as a human. My suspicion is that a lot of the therapists that are working with those 30 person caseloads actually also need some of those access yeah. <laughs> flexibility because they're the quality of what they offer would probably improve if they were taking more time mm -hmm. to connect with themselves and actually work on their own. Because I mean, it's, it's shocking to think this, but people can become, you can become a therapist, you be, can become a psychiatrist without ever working on your own issues as a client. Which is wild, but, right? Yeah, I can't even, I mean, that's, it's so connected. But again, this is a, an, an assumption that I think we have, a baseline that we have as kind of the wounded healer archetype you know, if you want to say it that way, that, yeah, that's totally connected. You learn about helping others by figuring it out and receiving help from others, you know, and, and that I think is, again, coming back to the ethic of mutual aid and why 12-step, I think is, I mean, there's a lot of problems with 12-step and AA, but it's wonderful in that. I mean, that's really how Freedom Center and Icarus Project, you know, that's yeah. sort of what came out of is like, how do we create mutual aid that's going to expand this? And it, this the knowledge and the learning is so much deeper and more meaningful than book learning and writing papers and doing tests and doing this stuff in, in uh, graduate school. And the fact that people aren't required to have that experiential community, mutual aid, I'm a client too, I healed myself. It's just one of the many, many ways that the entire mental health system is completely off track. We, we reward this expertise that's not actually really expertise. Right. Expertise so. over lived experience. Jax, thank you so much for this conversation. It's a really rich exploration. It's, it's great to have the opportunity to learn a lot about how you work and to share and compare and to reflect on my own ways of working. There's so much more that we could get into. I just want to you know, give you a chance to tell people about how to get in touch with you, about mm -hmm. your websites, the offerings that you have. I know that you wanted to emphasize that you're unfortunately not in the position with capacity to, to be taking on new people to work with mm -hmm. now. So I wanted to, to mention that, but tell people how to get in touch with you. And The easiest way for people to find me is through my website, which is just jacksmacnamara.net. I'm sure we can just put that in the show notes because my name is mm -hmm. a bitch to spell out loud. Yeah, I'm not currently taking new individual clients. I am moving towards offering supervision and mentorship to other healers more mm -hmm. and also looking at having some group offerings. One of the things I'm focusing on right now is offering, I'm also a poet and I'm offering the Big Queer Poetry class, which is an online intensive in poetry for queer and trans writers. So I'm online, jacksmacnamara.net. I'm also on Facebook and Instagram at jacksmacnamara. I'm pretty easy to find. If you follow me on social media, however, you'll discover that a lot of my posts are art. A lot of them are paintings and then cute things about my kid. And yeah. <laughs> great, great. Well, Jax McNamara, thank you so much for joining us on Madness Radio today. Thanks for having me, Will. You've been listening to an interview with Jax McNamara. Jax is a genderqueer poet, parent, artist, activist, educator, performer, and somatic healing practitioner based on the Tewa land called Oga Poge, also known today as Santa Fe, New Mexico. Co-author of Navigating the Space Between Brilliance and Madness, Jax is a neurocreative psych survivor who has toured across the U.S. and Canada offering readings and workshops. Jax is the co-founder of the Icarus Project, now known as the Fireweed Collective, 
a project that offers mental health education and mutual aid through a healing justice lens. Jack's life and work are the subject of the poetic documentary film, Crooked Beauty. That's all the time we have on Madness Radio. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Madness Radio host is Will Hall. Producer is Nina Packabush. Madness Radio is an affiliate of Madden America Radio, broadcasting on KBOO in Oregon, sponsored by Portland Hearing Voices and The Icarus Project, and syndicated on the Pacifica Network. Madness Radio is online at kboo.fm slash madnessradio and at madnamerica.com.